word out of your mouth can do that. By our speech we can ruin the world, turn harmony to chaos, throw mud on a reputation, send the whole world up in smoke and go up in smoke with it. You can tame a tiger, but you can't tame a tongue. It's never been done. The tongue runs wild, a wanton killer. Every day we carry around this untamable weapon in our mouths. And the psalmist is bemoaning the fact that he's surrounded by those who have chosen to use theirs for devious purposes. He looks around and is deeply distressed by the decay of his society. He calls out to God in verse 3, cut off their lips, carve out their tongues. It's a gruesome request containing a hint of both self-righteousness and self-pity. Honestly, the psalmist sounds a lot like the prophet Elijah. The prophet Elijah was likewise disturbed by the world in which he lived. And in 1 Kings 19, Elijah can be found throwing a pity party for himself in a cave he found on the side of a mountain. He had retreated from society in both fear and disgust and sought out safety alone in a hole in the ground. And when God found him, he humorously asked, What are you doing here? And Elijah responded with this gem, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, only I, am left. And they're trying to kill me too. Elijah essentially tells God, I'm the only righteous person alive. As if God had lost track of how many children he had in the world. Not even a human parent forgets their child, though they live across the country. God gently, in a low whisper, informs Elijah, No, 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 no. You're mistaken, Elijah. You're not alone. In fact, you are one of 7,000 people whom I have preserved for myself. And he tells the psalmist the same thing in verse 5. In Psalm, 10, in Psalm 12, we rather refreshingly hear God speak. In every other psalm of lament we've looked at, God has been silent. The psalmist has asked, where are you and how long? And finally, we come across a psalm where God is present and responding. I will now arise, he says. I will place the poor and the needy in the safety for which they long. He acknowledges that he not only hears the cry for mercy, but he's doing something about it. And in this moment, we learn two things. The first is that God's people have always been distressed by the corruption of the societies in which they've lived. It was true of Elijah, true of the psalmist, probably true of you. Do you not look around at the world and become concerned for not just our own future, but for our present even? I know I do. And in both Elijah and the psalmist, we see our same tendency to consider our experience of the culture to be both unique and ultimate. Things have never been this bad before, we tell ourselves. We're seeing unprecedented levels of moral decay. It's hard to imagine things will ever improve. But both the psalmist and Elijah challenge these expressions of fear and defeat. Can we honestly claim that our experience is unprecedented? That things have never been this bad before? When we hear both the psalmist and the prophet Elijah before him firmly believe that they were the only righteous people remaining in all the earth, this feeling of isolation is neither new nor unique. It's always been the experience of God's people. And God has always answered our fretting in the same way. 
with the reassurance that despite appearances, he's active in this world. Do we really have any right to fear that things will never improve when God has made his commitment to that very mission known throughout all of Scripture? I'll preserve my church, he whispers to Elijah. I will reverse the, the fortunes of the poor and the needy, he tells the psalmist. I see you. I love you. I'll never forsake you, he reassures us. It's a reassurance that comes to us in the form of a cross and an empty tomb. On the cross and in the tomb, we learn that Jesus has overcome this world. His trial was a sham with every witness committing perjury to convict an innocent man. He went to the cross based on the testimony of those who lied, using the gift of language for their own motives. And in the resurrection, he proved himself stronger than any lie or deception. He proved himself to be true. On the cross, he died with a plaque above his head, mocking him as Jesus, the King of the Jews. The people who put him to death sarcastically asked him the question in verse 4 of Psalm 12, Will you be master over us, you who cannot save yourself? But in the resurrection, he turned what was intended to be an insult into a declaration of glory and truth. He actually is the King of the Jews. And not just of the Jews, but of you and me as well. You see, it's when he appears most absent that he is actually on the verge of victory. Even though it doesn't look like it at times, he's reigning over this world from the heavens. It can be hard to believe, but in our doubt, <clears throat> it, it can be hard to believe that in our doubt he's paying attention. But the Spirit within us calls to mind the cross and the empty grave so that we can have the reassurance that he's not forgotten us. He'll come again to judge the world and make all things new. The proud will be brought down, the humble lifted up, the lies of those who deceive will be exposed, the poor and the needy will be satisfied and made rich. The story of this earth ends in justice because Jesus' story on this earth ended in injustice. He gets the last word. And he promises, I will arise and I will place the poor and the needy in the safety for which they long. His words, the psalmist poetically reminds us in verse 6, are trustworthy. They're pure words, like silver refined in a furnace, purified seven times. There's no deception in his speech, no sarcasm, no emptiness, no flattery. He's genuine in all that he speaks, saying only what he means and meaning only what he says. And he promises to redeem his children, to judge this world, to bring justice. We're promised vindication and victory. But before we get too carried away in savoring the idea of God judging them, whoever they may be, C.S. Lewis would like to bring us back down to earth. In his book, Reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis reflects on those psalms that look to the justice of God as their only comfort. And he writes this, One almost hears the incessant whispering, tattling, lying, scolding, flattery, and circulation of rumors. No historical readjustments are here required. We are in the world we know. We even detect in that muttering and wheedling chorus voices which are familiar. One of them may be too familiar for recognition. And it's this last line. One of them may be too familiar for recognition. 
That is the unsettling part about all this talk of the comfort of God's justice. What Lewis is saying is that our ears and our eyes are so attuned to the sins of the world around us that we become deaf and blind to our own. Our voice is present in the muttering and wheedling chorus too, but it's too familiar to hear it. We believe ourselves to be innocent. The godly are gone. The faithful have vanished. All except me, that is. That's the implied force of this prayer. I alone am righteous. It's the exact same thing Elijah said to God from his bunker in the ground. But the psalmist is unwittingly praying against himself, for his voice is in the choir too. It's just become too, it's just become too familiar for recognition is all. We like to think that had we been alive, we would have yelled with the crowd on Palm Sunday, but not with the crowd on Good Friday. We would have flung our, our coats on the ground before the coming king and not flung insults at him on the cross. You would have found us among the crowd shouting Hosanna and heralding the king of glory, not among the crowd demanding his crucifixion. But C.S. Lewis begs you to listen more closely because in the cacophony of voices is one that may be too familiar for recognition. The cross, you see, is a corrective for our delusional notions of self-righteousness. We don't stand on our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're debtors to grace. Anyone who thinks otherwise has the burden of explaining the death of Christ on the cross. Was it for others, but not for you? No, it was for you too. And to quote from the modern hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. You see, the gospel requires us to, to recognize, to confess our complicity in the death of Christ while simultaneously clinging to his love for us. It's a gospel of grace. And Tim Keller often summarizes the gospel in this way. You have to understand that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The cross is simultaneously a, a commentary on our guilt and on the love that God has for us. It's truly transformative in its power. And it transforms the prayer of Psalm 12. When we put this prayer in the mouth of Jesus, it becomes a terrifying one. Because he is the, the only person who could have truly claimed that he alone was the sole righteous person on the earth. And if he's in that position, then everyone else, us included, we were those with the flattering lips and double hearts, lying to our neighbors and to ourselves. We deserved to have our lips cut off and our tongues removed, but he was cut off for us instead. He was removed from the earth and from the gracious presence of the Father. There was no mercy shown to him so that endless mercies might be shown to us. This is the kind of grace that is transformative. It creates the space to do those radical things that Jesus demands from us in the Gospels. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. 
If someone forces you to carry their luggage one mile, volunteer to carry it two. This kind of response to the world can't be mustered up or muscled into existence. This kind of response to the world can flow only out of a heart that's been transformed by the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And so we find ourselves in the strange position as Christians of begging for justice, yes, but justice through redemption. Our profound forgiveness sends us to our knees, praying that the world will come to Jesus and be transformed through His grace, praying for our enemies and for those who persecute us. God will guard us from this generation forever, as the psalmist says. He will establish justice. He's promised that to us, and His words are as good as gold, like silver, silver refined in a furnace. And now we pray, put an end to the wicked. Redeem them. Transform them. Give them new hearts and new lips so that they might love and praise you alone. Bring them low that they might rise with us to new life in Christ. And together we will serve you not only with our lips but with our lives. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.